Lord, may the words that we just sang awaken our hearts to the glory of Christmas time. As we think back to that first Noel, when heaven and earth embraced, when you came to your own, who received you not, as a virgin beheld her newborn babe, from realms on high to a manger on earth, we remember salvation had dawned in a lowly birth. May you in your mysterious ways be praised. May you get praise from us. May you get praise from the other churches around our city and around your world who are meeting now and later today and earlier today to praise your name, to look forward to and remember the first Noel and look forward to your coming again. May you stir up in us a praise that just spills over. Lord, we pray that with great might you would come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins, your bountiful grace and mercy quickly help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, can you believe it? After this Sunday, we have one more Sunday, and then the next Sunday we meet, we will have already celebrated Christmas. It's that soon. Today, next week, then the following Saturday is Christmas, and we, when we meet on that following Sunday, Christmas will be behind us. Mike will be preaching, and I'm excited for that. But Christmas is really, really near. And you know, it's, it's a bit strange. The long history is the church uh, historically has set apart for the four weeks, four Sundays leading up to Christmas to fix our eyes on Jesus, to get ready for the incarnation. Sometimes you'll hear this called Advent. But as we look around the world, um, or at least around our nation, the preparation for Christmas starts earlier and earlier, even if the devotion to Christmas is less and less. We're a much less, uh, at least in the traditional sense, religious nation than at one point we were, yet we begin preparing for Christmas earlier and, and earlier. Uh, Christmas sales show up in early November. People start putting up lights before Thanksgiving. I'm not here to knock that, but I just want to point out we start preparing earlier and earlier, and you would think that that would mean that we find ourselves more prepared. But I think one of the things that we learn in the midst of this is preparing earlier doesn't actually mean preparing, right? We ought to be a people who are marked by peace, who are marked by hope, who are marked by joy and, and by love, and we ought to be marked by all of these things because we know that we worship the God who came to dwell in our midst. Yet, we tend to be marked by frantic activity, by frustration, by anxiety about getting the gifts and getting the house cleaned and spending time with family. You see, 
far from people of peace, we tend to be people who hustle and try to get it all done. We, we bustle and move. Far from hope, we find ourselves stressed, a little bit annoyed at how long the lines in the stores are, annoyed at how slow traffic is. Far from joy, we find ourselves stressed. And on the backside of Christmas, when maybe we're thinking a little more clearly, we realize that the things that were stressing us weren't actually all that important. Far from love, we find ourselves worried about ourselves. Rather than other-oriented, we find ourselves looking inward. Am I going to get everything done in time that I want to get done? Am I going to get the presents that will finally make my kids happy? Is Aunt Susie not going to annoy me this year at Christmas dinner. And so here's my goal for this week and for next week is I want to lead us to slow down. Slow down. You see, the danger that you think is a danger isn't actually the danger, right? So in this season, it gets easy to think that the danger we need to be on guard against is not having our house clean, not having the presents together, not having the lights up, not having the dinner pulled together, not having our Christmas cards sent out, letting everybody know that our family's put together and we have a cute picture. We tend to think that's the danger. But friends, that's not how you ruin Christmas. Christmas isn't ruined if your lights aren't up or if your dinner's not cooked or if your cards don't go out. Christmas is ruined if you forget what it is that we are celebrating, remembering, and anticipating, right? The danger that we think is the danger is not the danger. And so I want to lead us to slow down, to linger, to sit, to reflect, to rejoice, and to worship. And I want to do that this morning by pointing us to the art of awe and wonder. You see, here's here's the truth. The reason that we rush, 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 and that we don't slow down or linger is because we're not impressed by Christmas. You feel that? I we get it backwards in our minds. We think if we don't do the things that we need to do, then Christmas is going to be a bust. And that's, that's the problem. Christmas isn't about you or the things that you are doing. We find ourselves like Martha. Jesus shows up, and we're busy, 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 trying to get everything ready, rushing around, frantic, overwhelmed, constantly behind. And Jesus says... Martha. And then he repeats it if if you go look at it. It's almost as if Martha is so busy she doesn't hear the first time. Jesus says, Martha, hey, Martha, you're busy, you're worried, you're anxious, you're bothered by so many things, but there is only one thing that's necessary. And that's our problem. Ask yourself, why does hurriedness disappear when you find yourself looking out at an unexpectedly brilliant sunset? Why are you no longer in a hurry? Why does your stress leave when you happen to sit down with a long, trusted, beloved friend 
and enjoy the conversation? Why do things seem right in those moments? Well, I would suggest it's because you're sitting in awe and wonder of something larger than yourself. Our problem around Christmas, as around every other time, is we become too focused on ourselves, and that creates a whole cascade of problems. So, in order to get our eyes off of us and to someone more worthy, here's what I want to do. Grab your Bible, and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 1. Very first book in the New Testament We're going to listen, and we're going to pause, and we're going to sit, and we're going to worship, and we're going to wonder at the glory of what Matthew tells us happened on that first Noel. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, here's the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus means he saves. So why is Joseph to call Jesus Jesus? Answer, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place, the angel says, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that's Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In this season, as we approach Christmas, and in this passage of Matthew, there are a lot of things that we could stop and be in awe about, that we could wonder at. We could notice that the Virgin Mary conceives. This is particularly interesting, right? We've seen it, if you know your Bibles. God has done some miraculous things. He's created man from dirt. He's created woman from man. He's created humans from man and woman, right? That's the normal way, but the thing he'd not ever done was to bring man directly from woman alone, and he does that here. We could stop, and we could marvel, and we could wonder at it, and that would be awesome. But that's not the only wonder or marvelous thing in here. Uh, There's a creative way that God has strung his story together. You you notice Jesus' earthly father's name. It's Joseph. There's a character in Genesis who goes by that name, and there are some striking similarities in the way this story comes together. Remember one thing about Joseph is he was a man who had dreams. God spoke to him in dreams, let him know what was going to happen, and this Joseph is now having 
dreams. He has it here. We just read, if you keep reading in chapter 2, verse 13 and verse 22, he'll have some more dreams. And the Joseph in Genesis, you remember, as a result of God moving in his life, was led to bring in people to his family, to his life, that you wouldn't be surprised if he gave them a stiff arm. His brothers, you remember the story. Joseph here has a dream, and he then brings Mary, his pregnant, not wife, into his family. Joseph in Genesis, remember, is led to Egypt, and this trip to Egypt ends up saving the family of promise, right? Abraham's family would have died. What would be the promises to Abraham? And Joseph being led to Egypt ends up saving Abraham's family. And here, if you keep reading in Matthew 2, Joseph also will lead his family to Egypt to save them from death and destruction at the hands of wicked Herod. And we might stop and ask, why would God in his story work together these Josephs to be so similar? And we could provide answers like, well, Jesus is here being the fulfillment, the climax of Israel. All of God's promises are coming together in Jesus. But I think one thing that we ought to do is to just sit and marvel. When when faced with a sunset, you could open up your phone, pull up Wikipedia or Google and figure out where did these brilliant colors come from. And you'd get some answers but that's not really what the sunset's about. The sunset is to point you to the one who made it. And as you read the Bible over and over and over, you'll see marvelous ways that God weaves this story together that have echoes from the past and bringings from the future, and they weave together a marvelous, wonderful, breathtaking story. That's what I want to point you to this morning. We could see the the two Josephs and marvel at how organized and thoughtful and wise and creative our God is. We could stop and, and pause at the marvel that Jesus, the angel says, has come to save his people from their sins. That's something worth pondering. This is something from the very beginning, from Genesis 3, we kept looking for how is this problem going to be dealt with? God raises up Abraham and gives him promises, and we find ourselves thinking, is this the one? Is this how all that is broken will become unbroken? And Abraham's a mess, and Abraham dies, and the people find themselves enslaved in Egypt, and God raises up Moses. And we think, maybe this is it. And Moses dies, and David comes, and we think, now here's a king, a man after God's own heart. This is how God's going to sort it out, and he doesn't. He dies. And the prophets come. This is a a story we've been waiting for and in for a long, long time. And the angel says, here it is. Jesus has come to free his people from their sins. But the wonder I want to point us to this morning is in verse 23. Look again what the angel says. He quotes Isaiah, and he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's what we celebrate on Christmas. God's not 
far away, distant from his people, a hands-off, backroom kind of God who pulls strings like a, uh, a puppeter. Um, God is a God who comes into history, takes on flesh, and dwells with his people. This obviously can't be divorced from God forgiving his people, but almost like a diamond where you can focus on different facets without forgetting the other sides, I want to point us to God coming to dwell with his people. Now, this is, if you know much about your Bibles, this is something that God's people had been waiting on a long, long, long time. This is a promise that had been almost kind of dangling before them repeatedly for centuries. And I think you probably know that, but I think there's also something valuable in this theme of of slowing down and reflecting, of noticing some of just how prominent this is. So you can stay in Matthew 1, but we're going to have a series of verses on the screen that I just want to quickly read to you so you can get a little bit of a grasp for how big of a longing this desire for God to come and dwell with his people was. So the first one I'm going to show you is Exodus 29 45, God says, I will dwell, I'll live among the people of Israel, and that means I will be their God. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, God says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you or hate you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Deuteronomy 14, 23 says, and before the Lord your God, In the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Before the Lord, this happens. That's all in the first five books of the Bible, what we might call the law, but this is a theme that runs much wider than that. 1 Kings 6, 13, God says, And I will dwell, I will live among the children of Israel, and will not forsake my people Israel. Nehemiah 1.9, God says, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen. Why? To make my name dwell there. Psalm 27.4 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord. What is the one thing that I want that I'll seek? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Life. Isaiah 7, 14, you know this. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jeremiah 7, 3, the prophets are all over this as well. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Ezekiel 37, 27, my dwelling shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Zephaniah three fifteen. we read this earlier. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. And what does this mean? The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Zechariah two ten. last one I want to show you. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, why should you sing? Why should you rejoice? I come. And I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Now, we could keep going. Right? This was a quick list of verses. There are many, many more. So, question. Why this constant hunt to see God dwelling with his people? 
why is this such a continuing pressing issue? Well, here's the reason. Because God made man in his image. Humans were planted in the garden. And God, we read, walked with them. But you know the story. Adam and Eve trusted in the serpent rather than God, and because of that, they were exiled from the garden. It was this desire to see God and his people together that leads to things like the law, that led to the building of the tabernacle, that led to the building of the temple, that led to the sacrifices. And at every point along the way, no matter how much gold covered the temple sites, no matter how many sacrifices the people brought, no matter how many times they read the law or anointed new priests or did all of these things, the story ended the same. God's people mired themselves in sin, chose false gods over the true God, committed violence and hatred against one another, and found themselves cut off. Sometimes the story ends like it does in Genesis 3, 24, where we read that God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Sometimes it, it ends that way. Sometimes it ends like it does in Ezekiel 10, after we see that the sin of the people are so big that Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord go up from the threshold of the temple, stand over the cherubim, and lift off in a vertical takeoff away from the temple. And the Lord leaves his temple, Ezekiel sees, because the sin of the people will not allow the two to belong together. The result is always the same. And tell me, tell me that that's not the same story just in a different set of clothes than the story we see happening all around us. See, our world recognizes that things are deeply broken, that things aren't right. The way the Bible describes it is God and his people aren't together the way that they were created to be. Our our world doesn't have language like that, but our world still recognizes that things are wrong, and when there is a recognition that things are wrong, solutions begin to be offered, and you've heard them. There are as many solutions on the table for fixing the mess as there are people who live in it. Well, you know what will fix this mess? The government needs to spend more money. Or the government needs to spend less money. We need to have tighter community with better communication and better relationships. Oh, too many people is poisonous. We need individualism where people don't influence and destroy others. You need to work harder. You need to take care of yourself. You need to rest. You need to look out for yourself because nobody else will. That's what got us into the mess. We need to be looking and serving other people. Get involved with nonprofits. Keep your nose to the grindstone. Sound the alarm on Big Brother or Big Pharma. Exercise more. Eat this food. Worship this God. Try yoga. It's exhausting. Right? The problem is there. The solutions are on offer. But the problem is that creation is cut off from its creator and its sustainer. And in the midst of all of this, constantly, 
humming and echoing in the background all the way along is God's promise that he will come to dwell with his people. There's a promise for a new day and a new time. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Don't move too quickly past this. God with us. Now, Isaiah, I suspect, would have thought that meant sharing the same space as God, simply. Right? That's how the temple worked. That's how the tabernacle worked. And that would be a marvelous, wonderful thing. But look what Matthew says happens. See, it's not merely that God has come to dwell with his people. It's that God has become his people. He's taken on flesh. He's become incarnate. As the old Christmas hymn says, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. God with us. Let it sit a minute. Savor it. That's what we celebrate this Christmas. Not not just God for us, but with us. Not God behind us or in front of us, but God with us. The creator of all creation, born into creation, The God sinned against, betrayed, despised, ignored, come to dwell among his people, to die for his people, to save his people from their sins. Church, listen closely. Look at me. What has you focused right now? When we pause, where does your mind run? What are you worried about? Do you feel overwhelmed? Are you anxious? Frustrated? Depressed? Do you look up and and realize that Christmas is just around the corner and find that you've not meditated on the one thing necessary? Or do you feel like you've got it all together? Are you proud? Insensitive? disappointed in other people for not doing as good as you. Listen to what the angel tells Joseph. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Pray with me. Father, forgive us for looking everywhere except where we should. 
Forgive us for being quick to speak and slow to listen. Forgive us for thinking about ourselves rather than being in awe that Jesus has indeed become incarnate and come to dwell with us. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we repent of where we've placed our mind that we shouldn't, of the ways that we've bowed our knees at the altar of other gods, may that chase away our frustration, our worries, our anxiousness, our depression, our lack of patience, our emptiness of peace, the distant hope. May we indeed become people who are marked by peace and by hope and by joy and by love. Because we remember that it is in Christ alone that our hope is found. who took on flesh. The one who was scorned by the ones he came to save. And it is in his death that we find life. And so in this season, would you give us life? Would you fix our eyes on you, we pray. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.